my pleasure. It's so good to see you again. It's been a long time since we were bopping around the high plains in uh, Texas and Oklahoma. Absolutely. I know. I thought about that trip. So I know you through when I worked for the National Sorghum Producers um, and I was communications director when I first got on board there. And so you were on my reporter list. And so I would send you press releases and things like that. So somehow, I don't know how it worked. Like you said, we went on a road trip and I don't know how that came about, but we went probably for two or three days and we went to, uh, do we go to Plainview, Texas and talk to Glenn Schur maybe? I'm trying to think. And we went to yeah. South Kansas and talked to some cotton guys. Spent the night, I think, in Enid, Oklahoma. Enid. Okay. I didn't remember yeah. that Okay. A big, a big grain buyer there. Uh, yeah. An elevator yeah. and marketer. Okay. Oh, yeah, we did, didn't we? Maybe it's W.B. Johnson. Is that where we went? Sounds right. Yeah. Okay. I didn't remember that bit. But I remember, didn't we have Mexican food somewhere? And I remember talking about your family. Mm-hmm. Um, and just, we just got to have a lot of fun. And so that was such a memorable trip. That was that was one of my funnest times, I think, when I look back in that job. So that was a good trip. <laughs> that was that was fun. So at the time, you were you living in Dallas, just outside of Dallas, in a little town called Denton, which is suburb of Dallas. Yeah. Okay, gotcha. <laughs> we lived there for eighteen years. Eighteen years, and then you just moved when? Uh, to Tennessee. Yeah. Oh, uh, actually, it's been five years. Five years. Okay, gotcha. And then, yeah, so you're geared up for retirement. You're where you want to be right there, and you don't think... Day after tomorrow. Day after tomorrow. Okay, that's awesome. Who's counting? (laughs) I'm finding a trend. I've only done, you know, less than 10 of these podcasts so far, but you're my third in retirement that I've talked to. I talked to Bonnie Novak, who retired from... uh, they they own some funeral funeral houses, funeral parlors. Oh, <laughs> Oklahoma and all that. And then I talked to Scott Haley. He's he's retiring as the wheat breeder for Colorado State. Now I'm talking to you, and you are retiring from Farm Press slash Farm Progress. And so when I first met you, you were the basically the editor of Southwest Farm Press, right? Right. right. And lately. For the last, what, five or ten years, you've kind of been over all of the farm press as kind of a senior content director or what? Uh, for, you? For, the, for, um, for four years, uh, three years, I guess, and then about this time last year, I, I started uh, kind of easing back a little bit, and Brad Hare, is, he's now a senior content director, and so he and I kind of worked together over the last year just uh, – uh, to get him up to speed, but he didn't. He didn't need to get up to speed. He's he's doing a great job, and uh, so as I as I was, you know, kind of easing out, he was easing into into that position. And you know, my official position now is uh, is Delta Farm Press until Friday. After that, my official position will be whatever Pat tells me to do. Amen. And Pat is your wife. The good Pat for is my wife for <laughs> almost for almost forty years. That's awesome. That is great. You guys have been having a lot of fun together, so I know in retirement that you'll continue that. So was it last year that you went on your trip to England and Scotland? Yes, yeah. yeah last, last, uh, late May and early June last year, we went to uh, England, Wales, and, uh, and Scotland. <clears throat> Looked like you had a lot of fun. Oh, it was a great trip. 
That's good. So do you think after COVID, you'll be doing more of those types of things than in retirement? Absolutely. <clears throat> Absolutely. We run out of money. That's right. That's the limiting factor, right? Yeah. We, didn't, we didn't get to Ireland last year. And that's, that's, that's on the bucket list. We want to go to Ireland. And uh, we went to Italy. We went to Italy on a junket about 10 or 12 years ago. It was a, basically my trip was paid for by the uh, Italian trade ministry to the, the uh, International Farm Equipment Show in Bologna. And so they paid my airfare and I think four nights a hotel in Bologna and Pat says, I'm going with you. And I said, well, of course you are. And so we extended the trip and took a train down to Florence. And then uh, from Florence, we went on down to, uh, to Rome. And uh, you know, basically we were gone for about two weeks. I would love to go back to Italy. Beautiful yeah. place, wonderful people. It's great. Yeah, I didn't get to look around Florence much. I went with my cousin when we, I got done with my master's degree and he got done with his undergrad. We were trying to get grandpa to pay for our trip, but he didn't do it. But <laughs> we went, we got into Florence and it was Ascension of Christ weekend in May, uh -huh. which I've never heard of, but it's a big deal in Europe. Yeah. Yeah. And so we had to just get right back on a train. We didn't see anything in Florence and we went to Rome and then Naples. Hot and humid. Yeah, well, we, I guess. we were there in November, and it was it was pleasant. It, it rained a good bit, but it was it was pleasant. Florence is one of the, one of the most amazing cities I think I've ever ever been, and that in, that includes Paris and London and uh, and Lubbock. And Lubbock, amen, right? <laughs> Center. <laughs> you did spend a lot of time in Lubbock, though, and so whenever. You covered a lot of farm things, and so it's kind of fun to see your career, basically. You know, you're just, people are, are sending their well wishes, and, and you're putting a cap kind of on all these years of what you've done. So it sounds like you started at Clemson doing some, like, extension communications. Is that right? Yep. But I want to back that up a little bit. You got your, your English degree at Clemson, your master's degree. What happened before then? Let's talk about where you... Um, were raised, and I know your dad worked in a in a cotton textile mill. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then I, I read a little bit. I kind of went back on Facebook and read some of your posts about some of your memories and some of these stories that you shared about summers when you were a kid. That your mom had a garden, and and your brothers and you, and probably your sister. You, you before this, before you started recording, you called the princess, right? Cause I'm, I'm a absolutely princess. the princess. Three, three brothers and a princess. That's awesome. But you had a, a great childhood, it looks like, where you played a lot of baseball, read a lot of books, did that kind of stuff. So let's go back to that early time and kind of what, what formed you and got you in the direction that you headed. Uh, well, my mom and dad, uh, and, and they, they, I think I got different things from, from them. Mom, she was always an avid reader and we always had books. And, you know, she read to us when we were, when we were small, and, you know, one of the things I always wanted for Christmas was a new storybook. And so she, she would read those to me until I, I learned to read. And from my dad, uh, I, learned, I learned the value of hard work and, and, and doing the best you can with whatever, whatever task you have. Dad worked in a cotton mill, and he wasn't, he wasn't in management. Dad was, he, he worked manual labor all of his life in a cotton mill. Uh, he was a mechanic. He fixed uh, he fixed the looms, and you know worked worked long hours. A lot of times he would he would work uh, six days a week, 
and he would get off maybe Christmas and the week of Fourth of July. And it worked a lot of times when he was uh, uh, when he had the flu or whatever because they, you know they didn't have sick leave, they they didn't have uh, 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 any, anything like that. So he he worked a lot of days when he probably should have been home in bed. So I you know I can't I can't express you know how much I admire him for what what he did. And I mean they put they put five kids through college. Uh, you know, working working in uh, in a cotton mill, and, and mom basically taking you know, taking care of us at home. Um, so you know, I, I still I'm not sure how they did it. I mean, we we had student loans, and uh, you know, we we worked and earned part of our uh, our tuition money ourselves and spending money. Uh, my sister was smart; she got smart scholarships. Um, I just I just kind of you know, got by the best way I could. I like I the way you put that, smart scholarships. Smart scholarships. Uh, she was, she, and still is very smart. Uh, she just, she retired about three or four years ago. She, she was a social worker for the school system in Columbia, South Carolina for, for many years. Uh, but they, they always, it wasn't a question of, of whether we were going to go to college or not. It was always just assumed that we would go. And and they would figure out how to make it happen, and um, and they they helped us you know co-sign loans for us and uh, did whatever they could. And I, I can't imagine the sacrifices they made just, just so we would uh, would be able to go to school. Uh, so that you know, Daddy told me one time. He says, "I don't I don't care what you do, and I want you to have an education." And said, "I don't I don't." care what you study I just want you to have a choice and um, so that's probably the best advice I ever got is you know you know and, and every time I would think about quitting college and, and you know doing something else he would allow me the privilege of working in the cotton mill for a few days <laughs> Man, right? <laughs> yeah the studying didn't seem nearly as hard after that no, no, a lot easier than that grind. Yeah, that's that is a grind. But so, we, we grew up out, out in the country in Anderson County, South Carolina, and we had about eighteen acres that were that were were daddies, and they were my, my grandfather lived across the the road, and there were about another forty five acres over there, and so we had uh, we always had big gardens. We had a creek to swim and fish in. We had woods to play around and climb trees and, and hunt rabbits and squirrels. And, uh, you know, it was, it was a playground. Oh, yeah. So it seems like that love of fishing has really kept with you. Absolutely. <laughs> I like to go out there. I read one of, your, one of your stories about how you used to hate it when summer was going to be over and you had to go back to school. Um, yep. You know, now as the older we get, we kind of welcome fall for the temperatures and the uh, <laughs> weather. Yeah. But you were really kind of morning summer when you were a child because you enjoyed it so much. I and, did. I did. And uh, I suspect at least one day next week I'll be on a trout stream somewhere. That's good. That's good. <laughs> so, so good. So if we go back now, you ended up, where did you go for your undergrad then? Uh, I went to I went to Brevard Junior College my first two years, and I, I was able to to, uh, to walk on and play baseball. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, uh, I, I was mostly the bullpen catcher, but uh, but you know it was uh, I was a member of the team. I got to play up. I got to play a few games, and uh, 
uh, you know, uh, it was, it was, you know, I wasn't quite, quite ready. I, you know, I played baseball all through high school and uh, I wasn't quite ready to give it up yet. And so yeah. I went to a small college where I was, I was just able to play some. After, after that, I had, uh, I had reached my peak. <laughs> <laughs> I had I had gone as far as mediocrity would take me. So so then I you know I transferred from there to uh, a small college in Greenwood, South Carolina, Lander Lander College. My sister was there uh, with her scholarships and being smart. Uh, so I, I transferred there and got my BA there in English. Okay. And then. Uh, after that, I worked well. As soon as I got through there, I, uh, I had the draft to contend with. Yes. I joined the Army Reserves, and you know, spent most of that uh, first year after college either uh, uh, getting ready uh, to go to basic training, or, and then in basic training. And then I, I and then I got out and went to work for a bank. <laughs> yeah. Until. Uh, the editor of the local newspaper called me. I was, I, was, I was working as a teller in a bank in Greenville, South Carolina. And the editor of the local paper called me and asked me if I was interested in a job. And I said, yeah, that sounds like something I want to do. So I worked for him for three years. Okay. I did, uh, I did sports and I did uh, town council and school boards and uh, church socials and whatever the car wreck of the week was, that would be the page. Uh, and, uh, and I sold advertising, but not very well. Yeah, <laughs> 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 uh, you know, and it was, it, it, I, you know, I was just barely making enough money to, uh, to buy groceries, but I learned so much. And, uh, but after, after about three years, I decided I wanted to go, you know, uh, go back and get, get a master's degree. So I applied at Clemson and they reluctantly accepted me. And uh, so while I was there, I, I, was, I would uh, take two classes and teach two. I taught freshman comp. Okay. Uh, and so I thought I might want to teach, teach in college. And so when I, when I graduated, I started, you know, putting out feelers everywhere. And uh, I don't know, for every teaching job in college, there were about, you know, 400 applicants. So that wasn't working out too well. Uh, so I had a friend who had a friend who was the experiment station editor at, at Clemson University. And she was leaving for a year. Her husband uh, was, a, was a, a professor of economics at Clemson, and he was taking a sabbatical and working uh, for Gerald Ford in, as, wow. a, as a, an economist in, uh, in Washington, D.C. So she was going to go, uh, go to Washington with him, and she was going to leave her job for a year. So I applied and got uh, a job for one year. And unfortunately, she came back and wanted her job back. <laughs> uh, but, the, but there was another job opened up with the, uh, as an extension editor. So I applied for that and, and, and got that and did that for a year. And then uh, uh, Farm Press called me. Uh, and, you know, wanted to interview me to, as an associate editor for Southeast Farm Press and working out of Georgia. And uh, here I am. Okay. That, that was 1978. 
1978. And then it looks like you helped kind of start like a turf magazine down there. Yeah. Do you get to spend a lot of time on the golf course working on your turf stories or how did that work exactly? Uh, I visited golf courses all over the country, golf courses and uh, baseball fields. Oh. I, did, I did a story at Yankee Stadium. That's great. Wrigley Field. How fun is that? <laughs> oh, it was, it, was, it was great fun. And really some of the, some of the nicest golf courses. In, in the, I never did get on the uh, uh, Augusta National, but I, I got on some really good golf courses. And I even tried to take up golf, but that did not work very well. Yeah. Yeah, it was. It was if there were if there were water around somewhere, I was going to put a put a golf ball in the middle of it. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, I lived on a golf course in Lubbock and did never golfed ever. Yeah, I was, I was always I was always a decent athlete, but the golf just just. I guess if I'd started it earlier or really spent more time on it, I might could have gotten better. I would yeah. never get at it. You know, you and I are kind of the people that I saw a video. I think on Twitter last week um, where a dad, somebody hit a golf ball into his backyard. They lived on a golf course and his dad went out and played dead. <laughs> and came up and felt so horrible. He's looking like, did I do that? He's silent. Like, did I do that to the guy? And, and the guy's daughter's inside taking a video of it. And he just hammed it up. So that would be more like us. That would be our. Oh, story. absolutely. That would be dangerous. <laughs> For sure. Now, your wife is an Auburn grad, is that right? War Eagle. Okay, so my niece is at Auburn now. She's ah. a sophomore this year, so um, she just wanted to go down there. She thought it'd be a great place to be. So how did you guys meet then, and at what point did you meet? Uh, on a blind date. Really? Okay. In, in Auburn, I had a, a, a friend who, was, uh, who worked at Auburn, um, he was a, an extension engineer, and uh, Pat lived across the street from him. They actually dated for a little while, and uh, uh, he lived across the street from her, and I was coming down to Auburn, and he said, he said, you two need, need to meet. So uh, we, we met, and, I, you know, I took her out to dinner, and I was, you know, I had, you know, arranged, uh, you know, conveniently arranged some stories in Auburn so I could go down there. And <laughs> to dinner and uh, uh and she was teaching at the time and she thought i was boring oh no can you imagine <laughs> uh good southern girl that she was she wrote me a, a, a really nice letter for, for an evening and you know said if I, you know if i'm ever in the area again that you know to, to call her and she didn't really mean it but you know it was that was a nice thing to do so but she opened the door so i wrote her a letter Oh, and I write good letters. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. My letters, are, my letters are not boring. <laughs> so, and I made her laugh, and uh, so after after two or three letters, I think she got, you know, she decided that well, maybe this guy's not so boring after all. Uh, so she, she was a single mom, uh, uh, trying to trying to make a living on, on school teacher wages in, in, in South Alabama. So and I told her, I said, you can, I said. You can call me, just call me, collect anytime you want. And so we'd talk for hours on the phone. And um, so then that was in February when I first met her. And, you know, I don't, I don't think I saw her again until sometime in April. I went down over Easter or something and, and uh, 
uh, saw her on Sunday, and then several weeks later, you know, I talked her into uh, to come out to Atlanta, where I was living at the time, and, and visit me. And I took her to a play, and I cooked steaks for her. Oh. She was done. I mean, she. <laughs> <laughs> it was. And uh, we got married in October, so that. Okay. Year. So and uh, this coming October will be forty years. That's wonderful. She's my rock. I'm sure. And I and I saw, I think on Facebook, did you officiate your daughter's wedding? So you're a pastor too, right? Kind of. No, 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 no. no. I just <laughs> I just read <laughs> uh, uh, no religion has not gotten that desperate yet. <laughs> she had a wedding, she had a wedding on the beach in Orange Beach, uh, Alabama. It's beautiful. Uh, they had me read read some scripture. Oh, okay, that's great. I, you know, I, I didn't know which end of the Bible to hold up. And <laughs> I doubt that. I think that you have some really deep theology inside of you that sometimes, you know, gets unleashed on Facebook where I get to follow you a little bit. But I think there's a, some depth there for sure. <laughs> well, it's, it's a spiritual life is a journey. You know, you know, it, 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 uh, it's kind of like a river. You know, it's not the same today as it was yesterday. I mean, the water's still there, and there, there's, you know, the basics, basics of the river is still there. But uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's an ebb and flow, and you learn things, and you meet people, and, and experiences happen, and uh, uh, and you see things in a different light. And I think, you know, depending on how you react to that, you know, you're uh, your faith deepens. I think that's the way it's worked with with me. And I I grew up Southern Baptist, and I'm Presbyterian now. And I tell people I'm a recovering Southern Baptist. <laughs> <laughs> but it was it was it was good. Uh, I learned a lot because you were in church a lot, right? Like you yes. were three times a week growing up. At right? least, at least yeah. twice on Sunday, yeah. Once on Wednesday, yeah. Yeah, and, and sometimes with uh, with youth groups more than that. Oh, that's right. True. Yeah. So it was in in um, in rural South Carolina. That's uh, you know your social social life revolved around the church. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah, it does. It, it does now too. We we have a uh, a small Presbyterian church here in Johnson City that uh, uh, that has you know sort of become our hub too. It's, it's really, really special. So what took you from to Tennessee? What was the draw to Tennessee? Three grandsons. Okay. That's where they are. That's the tickets. Gotcha. <laughs> that, 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 yes. Uh, one of them will be a, a freshman in college this fall. One is a senior in high school and one's a first grader. Okay. That's great. And so I see you getting this puzzles together and do fun stuff with the little one and um you went to graduation this last year and so uh, before we started recording you were telling me a little bit about your grandson who might not get to play in his band because of covid right but, um yeah hunter, hunter is the hunter is the second grand second oldest grandson he is he's brass captain of the science hill uh high school band and uh he was really looking forward to it so they you know they don't know what they're going to be able to do they have a good band. It's it is it's excellent. They they uh, won a lot of competition awards last last year, 
and uh, and he wants to he wants to march in in college. He's he's looking around at colleges now to see where he could go and uh, and be in the marching band. It was it's one of those things that just clicked with him. He plays trumpet, and he's he's worked he was worked very hard to uh, to get his music better, and he's just he's just a good kid. Mm-hmm. That's the older one will is uh, is on scholarship at Milligan University, which is not far from here, uh, to run cross country and track. And uh, he, I texted him the other day. He said he'll probably do seventy three miles this week, and he'll he'll be a little more than that next week, seventy five or, or or eighty. Uh, he just loves to run, and he has, he doesn't have an ounce of fat on him anywhere. And he's also, you know, in addition to that, you know, they're both they're just good boys, good young men. That's such a blessing that you can be there close by and and spend those. Yeah, with them. we, we got time. Could, to, you could at least go run ten miles a week with them, couldn't you, Ron? Uh, I could I could walk ten miles. Hey <laughs> <laughs> uh, man, I'll do cool off with you. That, yeah, I'll do I'll do cool off with you. I loved uh, when uh, when he was running in high school. I absolutely loved to go watch him run. Uh, it was it was amazing. I would I get choked up as he <laughs> as he was coming near the finish line. Oh yeah, yeah. Just so so much commitment and dedication. Oh yeah, that's amazing. Well, you put a picture up the other day because I know you take lots of hikes and you take lots of pictures of the storms rolling in and your uh-huh. flowers and all of that. But you had one the other day that kind of looked like where the forest ran, you know, you, this beautiful canopy of trees and all that. And I went with a friend for my uh, 10th anniversary. Jeremy got sick and couldn't go, and I wasn't going to cancel the trip. So I took one of my friends <laughs> for my anniversary trip. We went down there to where they filmed that um, scene from Forrest Gump. But it reminds me of that when you put that the other day. So keep putting your pictures up. It kind of takes me somewhere else. So that's good. That's- that's one of my favorite places to walk that we don't have to go very far. It's just a 10-minute drive from our house. It's along the uh, a bed of an old railroad that used to run through Johnson City all back in, it was built back in the 18, late 1800s. And uh, there are places in there where they, where they cut the railroad through, through this huge rock uh, uh, hill. And it's like going through a tunnel. And then in, in the, the overlapping it it's just just beautiful place to walk that is great that's great what else could you ask you got your your family right there got beautiful places to fish and walk and hike and just be good church that's great great thing when we we you're also an author you're not just a, a farm press journalist and so your book is called passing through and i think that came out in what about 2010 something like 2000 yeah i think i think so and you sent me a copy, which is out in my storage trailer somewhere. I used to have, I mean, shelves that were awesome in our house in town. And when we moved to the country, I had to buy some Ikea shelves and not everything fits in here. <laughs> but people can buy that on Amazon. And just to refresh my memory, you know, you can look inside the Amazon books. And so this is why you're so great, Ron. On your first page of your book, actually just the first couple paragraphs, you it's, it's from the perspective of a guy who's passed away 
he talks about inflammation and constipation. And so I am right there with you. Like no topic is off base. You know, <laughs> I, I started a story. I never posted it yet about hemorrhoids and that kind of thing. So that's what I appreciate about you. You can go there. Well, you have to be careful. <laughs> too, too descriptive may not be. It may not be good. <laughs> you know, uh, when when I first when I first wrote that book, you know, it has some it has some strong language in it because there's a character that he's just a mean mean man, and I said I just I said well I want to make it real and that's the way he would have talked, and uh, I mostly don't talk that way. And, but, uh, but my mother read it, and it didn't bother her. Uh, so I said, okay. <laughs> I'm okay with this. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, yeah, it uh, probably just wasn't, wasn't too long, I guess, uh, after that till, till mom died. But, uh, uh, like I said, she was an avid reader. And, you know, she read just about everything. So, you know, she was kind of accustomed to, to reading about people who were less than what they should be. Uh, it was fun to write. I hope to write another one. Oh, good. That would be a great retirement activity. So yeah. that's fun. Um, so when you talk about all these farmers that you've met over the year, over the years, what, who's been one of the most memorable persons you've, you've interviewed? May not be a farmer, I guess, but what's one of the two most of them. There are two farmers. One of, them, one of them was just outside of Plainview, Texas. His name was Elmo Snelling. He was 98 years old the day I, the day I interviewed him. And he was still farming. Uh, he, he, his sons were farming a lot of the farm and he was farming the corners of the irrigation systems, of the, of the center pivots. So he decided he wasn't, he wasn't doing enough with that. So he put in drip under the corners so he could make more cotton. And he, he, was, he was working on the systems and on his tractor every day. And he, he, was one of the, he was one of the most interesting people. He had been farming for 60 years and had made 60-something crops. It was just a fascinating, fascinating life. And uh, the la I'll, I'll remember this forever. The last thing I asked him before uh, I stopped the interview I said, Mr. Snelling, are you, are you going to make another cotton crop this year? He said, I'm going to plant one. That's great. I may not harvest it, but I'm going to plant one. I'm going to plant one. And he was, and he was uh, he, at 98, he was still sharp as a tack. And there was a, another, another farmer I interviewed that just, it was just happenstance. I was in a, uh, an equipment dealer, and I was talking to this, uh, the manager there about uh, this is in Northeast Texas, about uh, how the rain that spring had affected his business. You know, it, it, it was one of those rare springs in Texas where it rained a lot. And, you know, it was one of those interviews that wasn't, just wasn't going anywhere. Uh, they, they just, there just wasn't any, anything there. So this one came in, I think he was 84, 85 years old. And uh, he was looking for a part for his sprayer so he could spray his pasture. And... I introduced myself and, it, and oh yeah, I, I know who you are. Uh, you know, I've, I've, I've read your stories. Uh, and I said, well, would you would you talk to me a little bit? And he said, I probably don't have anything anything to say. So we talked for about ninety minutes, 
and I, you know, I was just taking notes as fast as, as fast as I could. And he told the best stories. This, the farm he was on dates all the way back to uh, just after the Civil War. And he, I think he had a, he and his brother, and just after, when he was, he was just a child, his father died. So he and his brother and his mom were taking care of the farm. Uh, then his mom married uh, a widower who, who had a farm adjacent to them. And I think he had, they, he had two children too. So they farmed it together and, and, you know, uh, did the will so that, you know, that her part would go to her children and his part would go, go to his. So they've been on the farm all the time. And he told this story about uh, when he was, when he was young, there was a, a, he had an aunt and he was, and his dad was wondering whether he should go ahead and lay by the cotton or not, because he didn't want to do it. If there would be a rain that would just wash all the dirt back up on, up on the cotton. So his aunt said, well, said, I heard a whippoorwill last night and said, when a whippoorwill sounds at that time of day, it's not going to rain for a week. So he went ahead and laid the cotton by. That night it rained like crazy, it rained all that long. <laughs> the next morning went over to see his aunt and said she met him on the porch she said that was a young inexperienced whippoorwill <laughs> and he, he had he had stories that he just he just you know had me in stitches until the, until the very end and he was telling me about his wife uh, who was in the late stages of uh, of alzheimer's and mostly she she rode around in the truck with him most most of the day. i still i still get emotional when I talk about this. It was just so, such a wonderful story. And uh, somebody else was watching her that day, but he said he, she left to go to the deer stand with him. And, but she had gotten to the point where she just wasn't able to climb the ladder <clears throat> up into the deer stand. So he built a ramp. Mm. <laughs> uh, it was just, you know, one of those people that just touch your heart. Mm-hmm. So that, those are those are the two that always come when I think about two of them. Yeah. Well, it always amazed me because you would just have your little Steno notebook and scribble some notes. You didn't, I don't think ever, yeah, there you go. That's it right there. <laughs> you take it, you go. I don't think you ever take a recorder with you anywhere to record people, right? And you come up with this great story from that. So I, you know, I'm, I use a recorder sometimes, but I'll still take notes. I'll I usually write the story from my notes, and then if I have questions, I might go back and listen to the to the recording. But the the process of taking notes will kind of cement the ideas in my head. And I'll, I'll <laughs> I have all these colored pencils, all, all colors. I'll go, I'll come back into the office and you know, grab my note notebook and go through with a colored pencil and mark the things that I, that I, I think I'm going to use in the story. Usually after I go through it once, I, I, I kind of have the, have the lead in my head of how I want to start it. And most of the time I'll have the structure, how, how I, where I want to put each piece. Sometimes I don't, so I'll go through with another color of pencil and, uh, and mark it again. And by that time, I, I, you know, I know where the story is going. And then, and then I'll write it, and uh, I I write faster that way, as opposed to having to go through uh, 
through recording or transcript. Transcripts are, are not very accurate. A lot of times they'll, you know, you'll just read that. And, um, and my scribble, if you've ever seen my handwriting, is pretty, it's pretty illegible too. So I need to- Well, you're like me. It's like, yeah, it's, it's protected. It's confidential because no one can read it, right? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. I'm not worried about plagiarism on my notes. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I'll tell, tell some, some of my other writers, I said, you know, I, I think you should take notes. I said, uh, you, the, the process is easier. You have your story written in your head. Uh, usually by the time you get through with the interview, I, I ask better questions if, if, I'm, uh, if I'm taking notes because I'm, I'm paying attention to what they say and you know, I'm not uh, worried about what, what I'm going to ask him next or, or, or thinking about what I just asked him. I, I'm trying to get everything down that I can. And I always know that if, if I miss something, I can call him back. So, you know, what was, you know, what, what was the year you started farming? I, I didn't, I didn't get that, that number down right. Or, uh, you know, what's the, what's the name of that, that herbicide you used? Um, or, you know, how do you, how do you spell your daughter's name again? <laughs> but, you know, you know uh, and they are, they're always willing to, you know, to talk to you and, and fill in the gaps for you. But yeah, I, I took, I took copious notes when I was in school. I wasn't smart enough to cut classes and, and learn everything in one night. So I took notes. Okay, that's right. What do you think, what do you think maybe is a challenge for kids today who are coming out in journalism majors or English majors? What skills do they not have that you, you had back then? Like I know when I was a teaching assistant at University of Florida, I was shocked that these kids in college didn't have basic knowledge in English and grammar. And That's exactly what I would say. That nobody, nobody teaches grammar anymore. Uh, and, and, and it does matter. Uh, punctuation, you know, makes a big difference in a, in a, in a sentence. Uh, you know, the, when, when, we, when I hire somebody new, I, uh, you know, I'll, I'll, one of the things that I, I try to get them to do is, is really edit closely. Look at look at your grammar. Look for look for wordy sentences. Look for uh, uh, passive voice verbs. All those kind of things that uh, that a good English teacher taught me many many years ago. I had good English teachers in high school. I had really good English professors in uh, in college and in grad school. And uh, probably teaching freshman comp made me a whole lot more aware of of, of good of good grammar and uh, and how it matters. Um, so that's that's the thing, and I think I think social media is eroding it even even more because nobody uses proper sentence structure or grammar uh, in social media, and I think sometimes that bleeds over into in, into their uh, more formal writing. Mm, that's true, and I guess you got to know your audience too, because I the older I've gotten, the more liberties I take. So. You know, like Candace Olson, you know, Candace Olson, she's an interior designer in Canada and she had a show, a couple shows on HGTV and on her little intro, she'd always say, you got to know the rules before you can break them. <laughs> you know, I, had, I, had a, I had a course in college that basically that's, that's what it was about. It was called Grammar as Style. And we, we looked at, um, we studied Hemingway and Faulkner and, um, E.M. E. E. Forrester, who was, a, who was a critic, 
and also, also he wrote uh, Howard's Inn and uh, Out of India, or Passage to India. He was a novelist and a, and a, um, and a literary critic. He was the most readable literary critic I've ever read. And then Faulkner, Faulkner just goes on and on and on with a sentence that will go on for pages. And, and it's, you know, it'll, it'll run down this rabbit trail and this rabbit trail and this rabbit trail, and it'll finally come back to make, making the point. And, and Hemingway is very sparse. Uh, not, a lot, not a lot of adverbs or adjectives. It's very, very clean, crisp sentences. So we studied those three and, and looked at, at what you can do with grammar to, to make a point. Sometimes a sentence fragment is the best thing you can do to make a point. Uh, sometimes a very long sentence is, is exactly what you need to, to get an idea to flow from one part to another to another, but it has to, it has to be well-crafted or you lose, lose your thought. Sometimes a four-word sentence or three or four four-word sentences just pop together, pop, 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 pop. I mean, it just drives, drives the point home. And, and like you say, you have to know your audience, you have to know the rule, and know how to break them effectively. Mm-hmm. And that, that is, I think that's something you learn by, by writing. I'm not, sure you, I'm not sure you learn that out of a book. I think you also learn it reading. I still, I, I read a lot. Um, and, and I look at how people do that. I, I read, uh, I read op-eds in the paper a lot because there's some there's there's some op-ed writers who are very good. There's some that that I I don't read but once or twice. Some I don't read because I don't agree with them. <laughs> but George Will George Will is a is yeah. a writer, but he is so good he, uh, that you know I, I read George Will when when he's in the paper. I, and I don't care what he's writing about. I'll I'll read it, and his arguments are always well thought, well researched. And, and, and I respect his opinion. I may not agree with it, but I, but I respect it. See, my deal is, though, right, they always taught us in journalism in, at Texas Tech when I took most of my journalism classes, right? You, re, you write to, what, a fifth grade level? You see, uh-huh. George Will, I try to read him, but I better have a dictionary close by or look up every, there's all these words he uses. I have never, yeah. you know, so you probably know all the words. And so that's good. But I'm like, man, I kind of feel like he's being elitist because I don't know the words, but I think that's good, right? Like to read people that are writing things that you've never heard of or words you've never heard of because it yeah. does in our brains. It expands all that. Maybe my education just has been black. George Will doesn't write to a fifth grade ed- education. No. George Will <laughs> is writing to an educated uh, audience. And yes. that's, that, that's that's his audience, and he, you know, I, I'm, not, I'm not saying he doesn't care about people with with less education, but that that's where his audience is. That's that's who he's trying to motivate. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I, I think he does make it. You know, my both my degrees are in English. Mm-hmm. There are things that I probably miss by not having a communication or a journalism degree. Most of what most of that I learned. Mm-hmm. From from hard editors and, uh, and 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 just writing and and writing and reading other journalists, the thing that I liked about having 
degrees in English. So I read some great literature. And I had some great professors who, uh, who explained how that works. And, and I, I think, you know, it's it, vocabulary. Uh, I actually used the word loquacious in a story not too long ago to, to, uh, to explain Shelley Hughley. <laughs> and uh, she said she actually looked it up and she agreed with it. So uh, <laughs> and that's not a word that I use very often, but it but it's so fit. Uh, I, I do crossword puzzles every day. Yeah. I watch Jeopardy almost every night. <laughs> that's great. That's awesome. Just to keep your brain fresh, you know. But I, so I, when I was in high school, I thought I wanted to be a lawyer. So I was going to be a pre-law major. And mm -hmm. my dad's like, you know, we can get you scholarships if you do ag communications instead. So you're going to, yeah. so I did, but I, that summer after my senior year, I went and worked for our, our um, family lawyer who was actually also the county attorney in um, the county where my dad was county commissioner. And, uh, her dad wrote a note to me and he was a lawyer as well. Um, and he said, you know, as long as you read and write and understand the English language, like basically the world is your oyster. And if you can do those, you can do anything. And that has always stuck with me that if you can read and write and understand it, that's key. I had a department head one time when I was an undergraduate that, that uh, told us as a, well, you know, uh, I think I was a junior. Said you're, uh, you know, you're, you're thinking about your majors. He said English is one of the best majors you can have. Uh, I said you can do anything. I said if you can communicate, I mean, you can work in a bank. You know, you can go into law. Uh, you could, you could be, a, you know, a science writer or you know, what, whatever. But it said it will open a lot of doors, and uh, uh, it did for me. You know, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't expect to do this for forty years. I expected to be a football coach. Really? <laughs> yes. Well, that was going to be my next question. Like, if you weren't a journalist, what would you have done? Uh, I probably would have coached for a few years until, uh, uh, you know, none, none of my players would, would do what I've told them to because I'm too soft. <laughs> 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 I probably would have ended up going into journalism. Yeah, yeah. When I was in high school, you know, I, I, I wasn't a great student. I mean, I was okay. I mean, I, I, wasn't, I wasn't straight A's. Uh, algebra kept me from that, but um, I was, you know, I was okay. I, and part of it, I was, I was smarter than I was motivated. Mm. But I, but I love sports. I played uh, football, and then I played basketball, and then I played baseball, and then I played American Legion baseball in the summer. So that's, you know, that, that that's that's who I thought I was at the time, and. You know, I was I was never good enough to be a professional athlete, uh, and I you know I wasn't I wasn't big enough, strong enough, or fast enough. But I loved it. I loved to play. I, I still love uh, I still love to watch. I, I wish I was still able to you know play old man softball or something. But I have too many achy joints. Oh right. Yeah. But I you know I thought I. I couldn't think of anything that would be more fun than, you know, maybe teach English and, uh, and coach baseball or football and uh, just be around it, you know, as, as a career. Oh, yeah. uh, 
my oldest brother did that for a while. He he's he taught English for thirty something years, and he he coached. Uh, I don't think he ever he he didn't <coughs> uh, he didn't he didn't play football in high school. He played basketball and baseball, and so he he coached those uh, in in high school for a few years, and I think it was pretty successful. He was a good teacher. Mm-hmm. That. Well, what do you say to um, the people that are you that are behind you, either coming back up through the ranks or that are kind of filling your shoes and those roles that you've had before? What kind of words of wisdom do you want to give? The the thing I tell people all the time is number one is read, read every day. Uh, you know, find find something that you'd like to read. If it's a magazine. Uh, other than, you know, other than just the uh, newsstand varieties or the, you know, the grocery store varieties, but read, read good, read good writing. Uh, if, if it's a novel or uh, a nonfiction, uh, essayist, whatever, read and, and figure out what it is about that particular writer that draws you in. Uh, that's one thing. And the other is write, you know, just, just write even when you don't have to, just, just, like you say, you know, uh, be a little creative, play with it, see what you can do with, you know, just fall in love with words. Uh, I love, I love the language, uh, you know, uh, probably, you know, one of my favorite writers is Mark Twain. I think Mark Twain did, did so much with, with the English language and the way he expressed ideas. He could take, he could take a phrase and just turn it upside down and make you think, how did he do that? Uh, he, he wrote a short essay on how 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 to uh, behave at a funeral, and he kept, re- kept referring to the deceased as the one for whom the entertainment is being given, <laughs> which is not the way you think about a funeral. But the, but the, the way he wrote that, you know, he, and he he talked about how how much praise the the deceased was getting, and he says. Uh, it was obvious that taffy was being pulled, <laughs> but uh, but the the phraseology that he uses is just you, you just stop and say, yeah, that that makes that makes sense in a weird kind of way. That's it. I know. So he went on. Uh, oh gosh, I guess have you seen the? It must have been on PBS the documentary about him. Have you seen that? I think I have. Yeah, yeah. It's really good. So. I started writing about vacations and I was trying to um, just channel him a little bit. Cause didn't he go on a couple world tours and he went oh, to yeah. Yeah. But um, I know at least one of them he went and it was kind of a religious tour and he liked a, to drink. It was just a broad. <laughs> yeah. There you yeah. go. He, got, he, he went to the Holy Land. Yes, there you go. And so I think that that's just so fun how he wrote and thought about things and um, in a different way. Huck Finn's one of my favorite books. It's, uh, it, it, it says a lot about society of the, of the day. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, one, of the, one of my favorite parts of that book is, is Huck and, and, uh, and the runaway slave Jim on the, on the raft and he Huck is he's in a place where he could actually turn Jim in and and he says that he knows that would be the right thing to do because that's what society says because he's a runaway slave and and he, you know he he said 
He said, I, 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 couldn't, I, couldn't find, I couldn't find it in my heart to do it. And I know that I'm going to hell, but <laughs> uh, which is the opposite. <laughs> right. Yeah. But, you know, it, uh, I don't know, that, that, that's a, a passage in that book that has always stuck with me that uh, sometimes doing the right thing isn't necessarily what society thinks it is. Exactly. You know, and I think with Black Lives Matter, um, with all of the things that have been brought to light lately, um, you can look back on your life. I'm sure you were in the center of, of and like my parents were, grew up in Southwest Oklahoma and, you know, it was very segregated and I'm sure you have oh, yeah. in your childhood. Um, here where we are in Colorado, we are just, there's not much diversity at all. You right. know, we didn't grow up with all of the things that, that you would have grown up with. Um, but for me, learning like John Lewis and uh, any civil rights movement, um, mm -hmm. it's really interesting to me because I didn't live through it. My parents lived through it and I don't think about it. And I, and I need to ask more questions and see what life was like for them, for their friends, um, and what you took away from that. Pat and I were talking about that the other night. We both watched most of... Uh... John Lewis's memorial service just just moved, uh, and the the I think the night after that we watched a, a documentary called uh, Good Trouble. Yep, yeah, that's good. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it was amazing, and, and, and you know, uh, brought tears to our eyes, both of us. But we were thinking, you know, when most of that was going on, we we were in high school or, or maybe junior high, and we're pretty much oblivious, like most teenagers are, to to society, and uh, we realized things like that were going on, but it, you know, we were so insulated and 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 so so white oriented that it didn't it didn't touch us. My high school my high school integrated when I was in the tenth grade, nineteen sixty five, and they were integrated. I'm meaning about three uh, uh, three young black children were 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 in the school. And, uh, and they were bullied. And uh, I, I think sometimes, okay, what, what didn't I do that I should have done to have interceded there? And I, I don't know, I, you know. And there was my senior year, we had this, this I made, uh, he was a gentle giant, young black man. And I mean, he had, he had arms like this and he, he was walking down the hall and there was uh, two or three students basically bullying a, a younger, smaller uh, black boy. And so Lewis just, he would reach his arm around the, the black kid and say, you come on with me. <laughs> and they weren't gonna bother him. I mean, he got to but he, I mean, he, he was one of the most peaceful people I'd, I'd ever met. And so he just, he was smart enough to know that he needed to diffuse the situation and he knew how to do it. Mm -hmm. I, I remember several of us telling us that, that said, Lewis, that was, that you did a good thing there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it was, it was a learn, it was a learning curve for us. And um, I think by the time I got, I got to college that any, uh, I say any prejudices, you know, I think we all have prejudices and, and, uh, and we're all uh, 
all guilty some degree of that and and to some racism that we're not even aware of because we don't live it every day but that's how I got to college and, and was able to get out from that uh, isolated environment I guess I began to see that you know people are people mm-hmm. I mean I've been privileged to to, to travel to several foreign countries and uh, and have, have picked that up, up the same thing there that it's, it's people that most people want the same things they want they want their their children to be safe and well fed and uh, and have a place to live and opportunities and that's what we all want it is and I think systematically when we can step back and and look at those systems and look at the data look at everything look at the facts I mean I think that it's pretty clear that there has been systematic racism and there still is today. And when you look at home ownership and a lot of the different um, metrics that you look at, we do have to step away and say, what can we do to help this to be an equitable country and to where this doesn't continue? And uh, so I think that's really, it's up to us. Um, it is. It is up to us and what we can say, what we can do. And, and when you talk about agriculture in particular, Oh gosh, a year or two ago, I read an article about um, in the South somewhere, and it talked about FSA committees. Play on the FSA committees with the county committees would decide who would get loans, who wouldn't. And so a lot of land um, got transferred over from black people to white people yeah. because of that systematic racism. And, and uh, we have to be willing to to look at all of our systems and USDA now, you know, definitely has their diversity programs, but let's understand why they do have those. All right. Uh, well, one thing, Pat and I uh, participated in a group here in Johnson City called uh, uh, Black White Dialogue. It meets once a, once a month. We have, you know, we've been, been doing it uh, virtually for the last few months and uh, uh, it's just a group of diverse people and we, we talk and we listen. And I think that's one thing we need to do more of is talk to each other, you know, under, you know, and listen to each other more than talk to each other, listen to what they, what they say and, and how, how their lives are different from ours simply because, uh, you know, we are privileged. That's right. We may not think we are, but just simply because of the color of our skin, we are privileged. We are. And it's not until we step back and see our, see what other people have gone through and and we haven't had to deal with any of that and uh we're yeah we're just the recipients of privilege it's not that we're blessed would say you know you can get those traps of saying that we're blessed because of of what happened with slavery or anything but but really it was just because of someone else's oppression you know um yeah they're tough we're having to tackle these days with the pandemic, with <laughs> Black Lives Matter, with, um, you know, you've got hurricanes not too far off from you and, <laughs> and that kind of thing. So, yeah, we got a little rain. <laughs> yeah, a little bit of everything going on. Yeah, but yeah. Um, I'm so blessed to have gotten to work with you. Um, oh, me too. It's just, it's just fun to see, I think, what you're going to do in retirement and just to enjoy life and enjoy your family. But I want you to know that you're appreciated. And I, I did see um, 
you did get an award for that. You got the Norman Borlaug Lifetime Achievement Award by the Texas Plant Protection Association. And I know you got an award from Plains Cotton Growers not long ago either. And all of those are, are I think, just are meant to say thank you, Ron, for, for being in the fold and for, I think you're always a very fair journalist. Um, and honestly, you're just a lot of fun to work with. That's why I like it. But, but thank you for what you've done. I think you've, you've moved things forward for all of us. I have, I have loved my career. I couldn't. I'm, I'm, I'm glad that I'm not a football coach. <laughs> I'm glad you aren't either. <laughs> or did you play professional baseball? Because I probably wouldn't have met you that way. So. Uh, that's true. That's true. So there was no there was no real uh, possibility that that was going to happen. <laughs> uh, could have. You never know. You never know. Well, the, the the greatest thing about my job over the years has been the people that I've met, the people I've worked with, like you, and so many other people who have just uh, been willing to talk to me, uh, to, to to help me find stories, uh, to tell me about you know new products and new ideas because uh, you know the people in agriculture are just it's just it's just a unique industry and uh you know I've, I've, I've said this a lot of times you know every almost every time that i went to do an interview on a farm i left with a new friend mm -hmm. i can see that yeah and you know i, I haven't been on a farm since sometime in uh back in february i guess we've been we've been pretty much isolated i've done uh well i i've been on one farm back there's there's a farmer within 10 miles of me and i was trying to get some you know late planting shots or stuff like that and uh the day i got there was bailing hay didn't have a planter in the field uh but it was fun it was it was, it was a good interview and it was you know uh, it kind of uh recharged my battery a little bit yeah, absolutely, because you do. That's that's the fun part of what, what you got to do. You got to face it out of your home primarily and yeah. visit, and go out to the field, and do things. And you had a lot of flexibility, you know, as long as you got your stories in. And and uh, I think that's a great way to live. So it's been wonderful. It's awesome. Well, thank you, Ron. I appreciate it, and I wish you the best in retirement. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. Good good luck with the farm. <laughs> We'll need it, right? Yeah. I know, I know. It's a whole lot easier to write about farming than it is to do it. <laughs> That's exactly right. That's exactly right. All right. Thank you, Ron. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to my mom's podcast today. She had a lot of fun. If you want to read some of the crazy stuff my mom writes about our life on the farm. Go to our blog at farmerus.com. Have a great day!